Open your Bibles to Psalm 119. And look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Father, thank you for having your word settled. And not only is it settled, but you've handed it down to us so that we can read it and trust it, obey it, and share it with others. Father, help us to understand how important it is. And I pray that tonight, kind of giving the opposite view of this, that'll help us to know why it's important for us to stand. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that sometimes when, um, you know, I've got the heart of a teacher and I try to keep up with what's going on in the world theologically. And uh, I know sometimes when I bring in some of the, the crazy stuff that's going on, that it's interesting for you, but you might think sometimes, Pastor, why do I need to know this? Be honest, how many, have, how many of you have ever thought that? Pastor, why do I need to know this? See, my wife, right there. <laughs> I, I, preached, uh, I preached this sermon called, um, in Oklahoma, The Questions That Death Answers. And I kind of—I was a young preacher, and I went too long. And the church secretary said she thought she was going to die before the sermon was over. <laughs> um, she gave me this cup, coffee cup, when I left to come here. It said, "I'm so miserable without you. It's almost like you're here." Yes. Um, sometimes I know people wonder why I do it. Tonight, I think that you'll understand. So I had someone bring this book to me. Well, actually, I bought this one, but they they told me that this book was being used in a Bible college, and it's an independent Baptist Bible college. And so I wanted you to know why we fight the way that we do. Why do we put out the materials that we do, the books that we write, the journals that we put out? So... You know, we have our evangelistic side like we talked about in, in our discipler meeting. Now, it's all, it, each and every one of us, it's our job to lead people to Christ, to actively being, be pursue, we are to be pursuing people for the Lord. That's our job. And so that's a big part of what we want to accomplish at Grace Baptist. And then we teach the Bible here. It's just verse by verse, line upon line. We do deal with topics, but we try to address those topics from the Scriptures and that's the heartbeat behind what we do. But God has also given us a worldwide focus for missions. So we support missionaries around the world. But not only do we do that, but through, our, through the writings that we do here and through our discipleship ministry, we take that information around the world. I don't know if I told you, but, um, you know, the Bible college that Brother Fagali is starting in the Middle East, you all have read about that. He's asked me to be on the board of that. So I'm going to go to their first board meeting in January and um, just involved in education for people around the world. Isn't that exciting? We get to do that out of Grace Baptist, and I'm very excited about it. Um, So what I try to do is I try to be a help to other pastors, and I don't know, remember Brother Peak, Craig Peak? He says, when you're you're hunting and you got dogs, you you got chase dogs, and then you got jump dogs. Brother Alter, he's a jump dog. He sniffs out the bad doctrine on the bus and he jumps on it. Remember Brother Pete, that's what he says. And uh, so, that's, and if you haven't met Brother Pete, that's pretty close. That's pretty close. Um, so, when this was brought to me, I decided to spend some time going through it. 
And I want to, I'm just going to share with you what's in this that's opposed to thy word, or forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So this is introducing the New Testament, a historical, literary, and theological survey by Mark Allen Powell. Mark Allen Powell teaches at the Lutheran Seminary in Columbus. And you might be asking this question, why would they be using that at an independent Baptist school? How many of you think that's a pretty good question? Right? And so, he, let me give you a foundational principle uh, for our approach to theology. Now, theology is the study of God. And it includes, you know, the study of angels, the study of Scripture, the Holy Spirit. All of that is included under the, the broader term theology. There's theology proper, which is only, that's dealing only with the doctrine of God but then the broader view of theology. And there is a, a statement that I think is vital for your understanding of this subject, and it's this. There is no place for academic objectivity in the study of theology. There is no place for academic objectivity in the study of theology. What do I mean by that? There's truth and error. And something is true, we will assert that. If something is not true, we will identify it as error. And the teacher that teaches that, we will mark him and avoid him. So look at Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. And of course, this is completely contrary to modern evangelicalism. Romans 16 and verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses. Now, now this is what modern evangelicalism would do. They'd mark people that cause divisions. Stop being divisive. That's modern Christianity. Can't we all just get along? Right? But let's read the rest of the verse. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Now, does the book of Romans have any doctrine in it? Yes. So if anyone brings any doctrine and causes division, mark that person and avoid them. Modern Christianity, they do not mark and avoid. All right? You, you, radio preachers don't do exposés on other uh, preachers. Because, and just briefly, when... You had the fundamentalists that fought against the modernists, and then you had the new evangelicals that separated from the fundamentalists. And the new evangelicals didn't like how hard the fundamentalists were on their enemies. So the new evangelicals were established, and they said, we're going to reject the fundamentalist teaching on separation. So... What the fundamentalists would do is if someone was teaching false doctrine, well, you would separate from that church or you would separate from that doctrine. What that, meant, what that means is so let's say that Steve Clayton's church over in Salina, they start teaching false doctrine. Well, we have no say over that church, right? But we can stop having fellowship with them. That's separation. Does that make sense? Now, praise God, they're not. Brother Steve's doing a great job. So... Um, 
What the evangelicals said was, the new evangelicals, what they said is, we're not going to practice separation. We're going to practice infiltration. So the idea is, we're going to try and get into their institutions and straighten them out from the inside. Now, how well do you think that went? doesn't work. It doesn't work. Come out from among them, be separate, and touch not the unclean things, saith the Lord. Right? The, the separation is a very clear biblical mandate. So... The Bible says that we should mark them and avoid them. That's what I mean when I make this statement that in theology, in the study of theology, there is no room for academic objectivity. What do I mean by academic objectivity? It's saying, okay, when it comes to creation, this is just an example. When it comes to the idea of creation, some people teach that it was a literal six-day creation. Some people teach that these are long ages of time. Some people teach that evolution is real and that that's the uh, tool that God used. That, that he started evolution and then took his hands off of it and let evolution happen. There's another group that would say that God did create the world. That's called theistic evolution. That God did create the world through evolution but then he created a literal Adam and put him into that creation. Okay, so there's our, there are your views on creation. Let's go to the next one. That's not a helpful teaching. Because the Bible says that God created the world in six days. It's just what it says. Now, is there room for a gap theory before that? I think there is. I think that still fits into a six-day creation. Do you have to agree with me on that? No. That's why I don't teach it. But I do teach a six-day creation. You see? What's the difference? What's the difference? Just putting the information out there and letting people decide, or let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. That's what the Bible says. All right? Let's see if that's the approach of this book. Now, remember, this is from an independent Baptist Bible college. Um, so he says this. The book is somewhat unique in this regard. The standard practice for a New Testament textbook is for the author to present questions and controversies that have arisen concerning the New Testament documents. So the New Testament documents are the books of the Bible. Um, and if you're a scholar, you don't say the books of the Bible, you say New Testament documents. Um, describe various positions that have been taken regarding these issues. And then number three, tell the student which ideas and positions ought to be accepted i.e., which views are correct in the mind of the author. Now, what he means is the author of the textbook. What I would mean is the author of the Bible. Right? So he goes on, and he says, I have omitted this third step, you know, the idea of telling them which ones are right and wrong, because, not because I have no opinions about such matters, but because as a teacher, I don't usually find it helpful for the textbook to make such determinations for me or for my students. I assume that your professor will offer some guidance with regard to evaluating the different ideas and will do so in a manner appropriate listen to the particular academic environment in which you are utilizing this book. Such assessments are made differently in different contexts. A Protestant Bible college, a Roman Catholic seminary, a state university. And so when I called the president of the college about this, and how many of you doubted that I would do that? I asked... 
what could you write that a Roman Catholic seminary could use? What could I write? Do you think they're using Y Baptist? Do you think they're using the ancient Baptist journal? Nothing. So this is academic objectivity. I'm going to put it out there, and it's up to the teacher to take care of it. But here's the problem. In this instance, the teacher never took care of it, assigned the book, required the reading, and never addressed the errors. When you see the errors, you're going to understand why Pastor Jim was not happy. Um, But let me just give you this idea. Now, notice he said he's not going to give his opinions. Is that what he said? Not going to give his opinions. The, The heading of that section says... The book urges engagement of ideas, but does not attempt to resolve disputes. So he's even before that, he talks about how you can read this book. You don't have to read it in order. You can read it by the individual chapters. He says, some may want to read the chapters on Paul's letters before they read the chapters on the Gospels, because chronologically, Paul's letters were written before any of the Gospels. And he knows that how? Remember, he's not giving his opinions on on disputed issues. Let me give you an example of how dumb that is. And this is, you you see me do this all of the time. Um, Most of the time when I'm dealing with scholars, it's amazing how dumb they are. But remember, we're the uneducated, you know, uh, uh, plebes. Let, let Let me just give you an example. So he goes on and he gives a chronology a basic New Testament chronology, so that you can know when things happen. And so he has all of Paul's letters being written between 46 and 65 CE. That's common era. Because why in a Bible college would you want to say B.C., before Christ, or A.D. in the year of our Lord? Do you see how he's already rejecting Jesus? Common era. Give me a break. From 80 to 100, other New Testament books written, Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, and the second generation letters by followers of the original apostles. So he has the Gospels being written between 80 and 100. That means that that the writers of the Gospels were between 80 and 100 years old. No! But that's his opinion. That's his opinion. And the reason that opinion matters is because of the way their textual criticism works. They can undermine the text of the Bible by saying, oh, well, this was so far removed. We don't really believe that's what happened. They wrote it that way. And I'll give you some examples of that here in a minute. But this is the beginning of our problem with this book. How many of you already can tell this is probably not a book that an independent Baptist college ought to be using? Let me give you an example. Open your Bibles to Philippians 3, 5. Do you see how far into the book we are? Look at this. This is, this is how far I got. So let's look at Philippians. Chapter 3 and verse 5. Oh, probably verse 4 for the context. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Now, concerning zeal persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. All right? So, 
Here's what this writer says. He's talking about, oh, why it's important people, the people of Palestine at the time of Jesus. Now, notice he calls it Palestine. Is it Palestine? Where did the name Palestine come from? The Romans took it from the name Philistine to insult the Jews after the Bar Kokhba rebellion. When they, when they wanted to stamp out the Jews, they changed the name to a name the Jews would hate. So the people of God probably shouldn't use that term. Right? If you wanted to call Palestine now the area where the Palestinians are, I understand that. He's describing the land at that time. He's calling it Palestine. So this is the genius that wants us to understand the Bible. But this is before they called it Palestine. Uh, y'all understand? You with me? All right. Preacher, why are you mad? I don't know. So he's talking about the, these people groups, Pharisees, Sadducees. And it's good to know who those people are. But listen to what he says. He says, um, the apostle Paul was raised a Pharisee and continued to regard himself as a Pharisee even after he became a missionary for Christ. Can we read the next verse? Look at what it says in verse 8 or verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Did Paul still count himself a Pharisee? How many of you do not have a PhD in theology? Any of you? You don't have that? How many of you understand that this guy's a moron? Right? Let's vote. All the people said. So, this, we're, we're just beginning. So understand, give this to a young preacher. Use this to understand how your New Testament was put together. God's word is settled. It's settled. He goes on. He has some interesting historical stuff. I actually learned some things reading through these first few pages. But let me give you an example. Go to um, Acts chapter 12. So remember, he made a declarative statement that the Gospels were written after Paul's writings. That was a declarative statement. That, that He stated that as fact. He had no problem making an assertion. Y'all following me? I want you to notice how his language changes. So look at Acts chapter 12 and verse 20. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout saying, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Okay, now, this is a historic event that the Bible records. Would you all agree with that? Right? Listen to the way that this guy describes it. He ultimately met with a somewhat gruesome death, which the New Testament attributes to divine wrath. Remember, Paul's books were written before the Gospels. The New Testament says that it was a gruesome death. Not 
He died a gruesome death. See the difference? What is this? That's that soft criticism that comes into the text. And that's the attitude he takes unless he's giving his opinions that undermine the truth of the Bible. I'm going to show you some of those. Um, So, he's talking about the Septuagint. This Greek translation of the Jewish Bible is called the Septuagint. The word means 70, and a common abbreviation for the Septuagint is LXX, the Roman numeral for 70. Why this name? According to legend, the translation was done by 70 or 72 different scholars who, working independently, produced 70 or 72 identical translations. The Septuagint was widely used throughout the diaspora, so that was the scattering of the Jews throughout the diaspora, and also appears to have been used in many parts of Palestine. Remember, it's Palestine, while the the time he's talking about is while Jesus Christ was teaching. He's calling it Palestine. Um, The Bible calls it Israel. Okay, Galilee. Um, Now listen, notably, most New Testament authors quote from the Septuagint rather than from the Hebrew Bible when they make reference to something that is said in Scripture. Now, did he say some scholars teach? Or did he say they quoted? He's making a doctrinal, he's making a, a, an assertion, right? Here's the problem. You ready for this? How many copies of the Septuagint you think exist before about 300 A.D.? How many copies have they found to verify this? How about none? You know why? Didn't exist. It didn't exist. And even evangelical, non-King James scholars acknowledge that. Craig Evans, New Testament scholar from Canada, he was one of the guys that in uh, the case for Christ or the case for, for the real Jesus, he's one of the guys that's in that. Even he says that there's no evidence for a pre-300 Septuagint. What do they have? They find a few passages of Scripture. I'm talking about two or three verses that were translated from Hebrew into Greek. And so they have somehow had that grow by legend into this. Now, why is this important? It's important because the Septuagint is a, it shows a different textual line than our Bible comes from. It disagrees with our Bible. And they have to say they used it because the modern translations of the Bible agree with the Septuagint. They don't agree with the King James. Do you know why? Because that Septuagint, do you know where it came from? It was the fifth column of Origen's Hexapla. Origen put six different translations of the Bible in a book. His fifth column was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's where the Septuagint came from. Why do you think the modern translations agree with the Septuagint? They come from the same source, Origen, who corrupted the text. That's why scholars like him want to make sure that we understand that the New Testament writers were quoting from the Septuagint. But are you ready for this? Let's, let's bring a little just dumb, uneducated, Baptist thinking to this. So when the New Testament writers are quoting Scripture, primarily they're quoting the Scripture that Jesus said. Boy, I'll bet you Jesus was really glad he had that Septuagint. 
so that he could know what the Bible said. How many of you think Jesus needed a Bible to know what the Bible says? In the beginning was the Septuagint. What's it say? In the beginning was the the word. Thy word is settled in heaven. Jesus did not need a, a, a fictional Septuagint. All right. So remember, he's not going to give you his opinions. Let me read the statement again so we can make sure that we see how consistent he is. Notably, most New Testament authors quote from the Septuagint rather than from the Hebrew Bible. He knows that. He's absolutely sure of that. But he's not sure that Herod was killed in a gruesome way by God. Well, the New Testament says that's what happened. All right, let's go on. This, you'll, you'll really get a kick out of this one. Any of you come from a Roman Catholic background? Any of you, that's, that's, you understand that? You'll like this. In the New Testament, the Apocrypha is never cited as Scripture. But Paul and other writers do appear to have read some of these books and to regard their teaching favorably. What? Here, young man, understand your New Testament. Go and teach your people. Let's go on. Hellenism, so y'all remember your history class, remember what Hellenism? That's the influence of the Greeks on the rest of the culture. So the Romans conquered the Greeks, but they never conquered Greek culture. All right? So that's kind of the aphorism that's used for that. Um, so Hellenism also brought a pervasive increase of religious syncretism. So that's the blending of, of religions. Um, for example, some Jewish people came to believe in immortality of the soul. The idea from Greek philosophy that each person has a soul that continues to live after his or her body dies. Now, that is, Greek philosophy does teach that, but Greek philosophy got that from the Bible. The Bible didn't get it from Greek philosophy. Who do you think this guy is giving the, the weight to? The philosophers or the Bible? Isn't that interesting? You've got to be a scholar to do that. You've got to lose your faith to be able to do that. Again, this is why my dad, his generation, and those of you who are from my dad's generation remember this, they called seminaries cemeteries because that's where a young man's faith went to die. That's what this book would do. So, he goes on. For example, some Jewish people came to believe in immortality of the soul, the idea from Greek philosophy that each person has a soul that continues to live after his or her body dies. Now, again, he just said the origin of that teaching is Greek philosophy. But God breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Is that what the Bible says? There was material in the Jewish scriptures that could be read in support of such a view, though it had not been understood that way previously. Really? What about Job? I know that my Redeemer lives. What about David when his son died? He can't come to me, but I can go to him. Does that sound like belief in an afterlife? This is... Okay. So... He goes on, and he's talking about, again, the influence of Hellenism. And he gives three ways, wisdom, theology. Um, so the wisdom theology is the idea. Wisdom theology became more popular than ever before. 
The wisdom tradition of Israel focused less on divinely revealed truth, prophets declaring a word of the Lord that often went contrary to human thinking, and more on common sense, truth that is gained through general insight into life and the human condition. So what he's saying is that the Greek influence is what caused David to write the Psalms and Solomon to write Proverbs. How many of you think maybe God had him write that? How many of you did not know God was a Greek philosopher? See the stuff that you get to learn in seminary? Goes on. You ready for this? So he's talking about dualism. We've talked about dualism. And that's, you know, you have these equal forces, good and evil in the world. So dualism came to the fore as a more prominent aspect of religious perspective. Listen to this. In the New Testament world, however, we've got to look at the verse. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. How many of you could have discerned there's problems with this book without me? Seriously. I mean, you did not need Pastor Jim to see this. What's a Bible college doing using this? Matthew chapter 5, and I, did I say 45? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let me read this to you, and then we'll, let me read this from the book, and then we'll look at the text. In the New, we're talking about dualism, the influence of, of Hellenism, it brought uh, dualism. In the New Testament world, however, we find that it has become common to think that there are good people and evil people, quote, good people, quote, evil people in the world. Okay, look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Who is saying that? Who is it? One more time. How many of you didn't know that Jesus was influenced by Hellenism? Right here at this point, I was already mad. My head exploded. This was duct tape moment, wrapping my head in duct tape. I, I, I was going to read this whole book and do this through the whole book. I made it through page 34 and said, I don't need to read another page. You ready? How many of you have already seen enough? We're not done. The dualistic impulse granted far more power to Satan Thus, in the New Testament, we discover that Christians, influenced by Hellenistic Judaism, have become so dualistic that they actually refer to Satan as the god of this world. Or maybe he is the god of this world. Now, you, you, this is where you have to understand what's happened here. What's happening in this book is he is practicing a discipline called source criticism. Source criticism. So the idea is they're trying to discern where did the writers get this information. And so what he believes is that the gospel writers and the New Testament writers got this concept of the God of this world from the Greeks. Folks, this is blasphemy. This is what I told the head of this Bible department. I, I got a call from him after I talked to the president. So he calls me and we talked for about an hour. And I said, if, if you had me come out to teach a course on source criticism, 
Let me tell you how that would go. Okay, you all get your pens out? You ready? God, go to lunch. That's the source. All Scripture is given by inspiration of... Did Jesus get the concept of good and evil people from the Greeks? Did the Apostle Paul get that that title, the God of this world, from the Greeks? No. What did Paul do? Paul went to the Greeks and said, hey, you've got a, you've got a God here. It's called the, this altar to the unknown God. Let me declare him to you. Did Paul learn something from them? No. Paul taught them what he got from the Holy Spirit of God. So, just I just wanted you all to know what's going on. And I'm going to recommend that the people in this Bible college watch this. I sure hope it was recorded. I'm going to have them watch this. And see if they have enough courage. And say, tell me what I said wrong. Because I'm just telling you. This has to stop. This has to stop. And uh, so we as a church, let's just make sure that we stand for the truth. And you know what I'm thankful for? I was talking with Dalton Robertson about it this afternoon. And um, he said, the reason, and I found this out. I'm the only pastor, apparently, that makes these phone calls. Well, shame on the other pastors, right? And here's what Dalt said, and I thought this was an interesting statement. He said, one of the reasons for that, he said, I think, is because most of the pastors aren't teaching their people well enough to be able to identify these errors. And you all can identify these errors. Why? Because we have one-on-one biblical discipleship, and you all are learning how to understand the Bible and trust it and communicate it to other people. And praise God, or let me, not, 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 God willing, we're going to stay right at Grace Baptist Church. And if we'll stay right on the Bible, so there, there are four things we need to stay right on, okay? If you want to write these down, that would be great. But there are really just four things we need to stay right on. We need to stay right on salvation. We have to stay right on the gospel, And the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Finish it for me. According to the scriptures. Being born again, we quoted it this morning, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So we have to stay right on the gospel, that the gospel is by faith and not of works. We have to stay right on the gospel. Stay right on that. And in order to stay right on the gospel, you have to stay right on the Bible. If the Bible is true, then we know what the gospel is. If the Bible is not true, then we cannot know what the gospel is. Got to stay right on the gospel. We have to stay right on the Bible. And then we have to stay right on right division. What is right division? Taking the passages in their context. We have to, we have to keep believing and understanding the Bible literally. It's not an allegory. It's true. 
When the Bible, when Jesus says, I am the door, he doesn't have hinges and a knob, but he is the door. The only way to salvation is through him. So even the metaphors we take literally, are you all with me? And so, if we stay right on that, and that taking the Bible literally, that will cause us to understand the Bible in its context. So that means we understand the Bible by its dispensations. That God revealed things over time. Technically, it's called progressive revelation. So, as I mentioned, I can't remember if it was Sunday school or in the morning service, that, that Adam, or Abraham would be a better, because who knows what Adam knew? He was walking with Jesus, right? Who knows what God had told Adam? Abraham knew less about God's plan than I do. Now, that's a bold statement, right? Why? Because I've got the whole Bible. Abraham didn't have the whole Bible. That's progressive revelation. Um, if you believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament, you believe in at least two dispensations, right? Now, we believe that there's more than that. But if you understand the Bible, if you take the Bible literally, you take it in its context, you will be a dispensationalist. This church can stay right if we stay right on the gospel, if we stay right on the Bible, and then if we stay right on Bible interpretation. Why? Because no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. The Bible says interpretation belongs to God. If you want to interpret the Bible, you understand it by comparing Scripture with Scripture. That will keep us from turning to Reformed theology. That will teach us from, that will keep us from turning to covenant theology. See, the opposite of dispensational theology is covenant theology. And covenant theology is not the Noahic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant theology are covenants that are not found in the Bible. The covenant of works, the covenant of grace. That's not anywhere in the Bible, folks. It's not in the Bible. And that comes from taking the Bible allegorically rather than taking it literally. So if we stay right on the gospel and we stay right on the Bible and we stay right on right division, the last thing that we need to do in order to stay right is to stay right on our Baptist distinctives. We have to stay right on these things. That is, you can only be a member of Grace Baptist Church if you're born again. You have to be saved. We don't baptize babies and they become members of the church. Then you have lost church members. You have to be born again in order to be a member. We also believe in the autonomy of the church. There's no outside organization that's going to tell us what to preach or what to do. Government or religious? Our authority is the word of God autonomy of the local church. Then the priesthood of the believer. We don't confess our sins one to another. We confess our faults one to another. There's one high priest. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. We are a, a, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. I can go to God for you. You can go to God for me if you're born again. The priesthood of the believer. There is no longer the office of the priest. Why? Jesus Christ ended that when that veil was rent in two. He is still our high priest, but we have become priests and kings. So the priesthood of the believer. Then there are two ordinances. They're not sacraments. You don't receive grace from these. These are pictures. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they both follow salvation. Baptism follows salvation. The Lord's Supper follows salvation and baptism. And then we believe in individual soul liberty. That's why we will never, we will never 
drag somebody off the street and make them listen to the gospel. We will not violate another person's conscience. We will not do that. We violate the teenager's consciences every week. You have to come. You have no choice. Adults, we will never violate their conscience. Amen? Vital that we understand that. And then we believe in separation of church and state. Again, we can never have a state church because that's violating someone's conscience. Saying that you have to believe a certain way to be a citizen, that goes against the Scriptures. All right? Then we also believe that there are two offices in the church, the pastor and the deacon. The pastor and the deacon. There's not all of these others, a bishop, an archbishop, and cardinal, a metropolitan, and pope. And the, none of that stuff happens. There are two offices in the church, and their, their jobs are clearly defined in Scripture. And then the Bible is our sole authority. We're not, we're not confessional, although confessions are great. Confessions of faith, praise God for a good confession of faith. That's not authoritative. That's not a, our authority are not the creeds or the councils. Because those creeds and councils are man-made things, and many of them contain false doctrine. What is our creed? The New Testament. That is the foundation for everything we do. So if we as a church, if we want to stay right and not follow what this knucklehead is doing, then what we have to do is we have to stay right on the gospel, we have to stay right on the Bible, we have to stay right on right division, and we have to stay right on what is a church and how is it to function. If we do that, we will stay right And listen, it's not up to Jim Alter. It's up to Grace Baptist Church. And Grace Baptist Church is you. This is why discipleship is so vital. It's so vital that you all understand these things. Now, you don't have to understand all the terminology. There are some technical terms in this book that that's my thing. That's what I do. All of you in your jobs, you have technical terms that I would not understand. That's not the point. The point is, how many of you know that Jesus didn't learn from the Greeks? My favorite illustration of this, I I had a textbook, and it was a gospel, it was a a commentary on John. And you know that the first verse, in the beginning was the Word. And so based on source criticism, this, this commentary is trying to discern, where did John get this word, logos? That's the Greek word for word. Where did John get this? And this commentator, he lists eight different ideas that scholars have come up with for where John got the term logos. Eight of them from eight different authors. Never said which one was right. Remember? Academic objectivity. Do you know what none of the options were? So eight. This was not an option. The Holy Spirit. That wasn't an option. Or how about this one? It's his name. And so... This is R.C. Sproul. Any of you know R.C. Sproul? In his book, The Consequences of Ideas, he's talking about this Greek philosopher Thales. Thales was looking for this ultimate idea, and he called that logos. And that was about 400 B.C. that he had this word logos. Listen to what Sproul said in that book. John appropriated that term when he wrote logos. So again... I'm not the scholar that R.C. Sproul was, but let me see if you all can figure this out, okay? Here, let's see. Now you guys can't do it. Okay. What came first? See if you can figure this out. 400 B.C. 
or the beginning? Good job. The beginning. In the beginning was the word. Does the beginning come before 400 BC? How dumb do you have to be to not know that? See, my dad would say they were educated beyond their intelligence. This is what we're up against. Are we for education at Grace Baptist? Absolutely, but we're not for that kind of education. Why? Because that's lies. Not only is it lies, here's the part that bugs me. It's dumb lies. Like the Philippians 3, 5. Uh, can you read the next verse? I'm sorry, two verses. Can you read the next two verses? So understand that when, we're, when we keep pounding on the authority of God's word, believe it, believe it, don't change it, don't change it, don't change it, believe it, believe it, believe it. I never say trust me. Believe God's word. I'll let you down. God's word will never let you down. Why? Man, thy word, it's settled in heaven. How long? For how long? Forever. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to teach it. Father, thank you that there are some things we can be sure of. Father, thank you for a church that gives me the liberty to say these things.